morning's scripture is found in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 to 11. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. I'm trying to imagine myself sitting out there this morning, listening to this reading from the Bible as if I've never heard it before. Did she say what I think she said? Maybe she said, circumference. Or maybe she said, circumstances circumspect. But a quick glance at the sermon title in the program this morning would confirm your worst fear. She said circumcision. Now this month, we've got this series, and this is actually the final Sunday in a series that we're calling Old School Bible Fights. Now while I doubt anyone here has found themselves in an argument about the spiritual value of circumcision, For the early church, this was the hottest of all hot topics. Now, I thought it's possible that there might be people here this morning who aren't sure what this circumcision thing is. So I looked up a definition for you on Wikipedia. Circumcision is the removal of the foreskin from the human penis. Now, it took me 21 years but I have finally dropped the P word in church for perhaps the last time. Now, here's what I hope that you will understand by the end of this morning. As squeamish as you may feel right now, the underlying message is about as central to Christian faith as it gets. And I think that's what we're going to understand by the end of this morning. Now, last week we talked about Job. And the question of where suffering comes from. That's a big question. Where does suffering come from? Well, here's another mystery to unravel. Where on earth did circumcision come from? At some point in human history, someone thought, let's try this. 
Who was that person? And what were they thinking? What normal person would think that this was a good idea to try? Now, the history of it is actually a little foggy. No one really knows when it began. But what we do know is that its history goes on much further than the first time it appears in the Bible, which is Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 to 14. So I'll read this story for you. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant between me and you and will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and God said to him, As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham. For I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you and kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as an everlasting covenant between me and you and your descendants after you for the generations to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you. The whole land of Canaan where you are now an alien I will give as everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you and I will be their God. Then God said to Abraham, as for you, you must keep my covenant you and your descendants after you for generations to come. This is my covenant with you and your descendants after you, the covenant you are to keep. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You are to undergo circumcision, and it will be the sign of the covenant between me and you. For the generations to come, every male among you who is eight days old must be circumcised, including those born in your household or bought with money from a foreigner who's the Uh, those who are not your offspring, whether born in your household or bought with your money, they must be circumcised. My covenant in your flesh is to be an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who has not been circumcised in the flesh will be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. So I was reading this, and I had this image came to my mind. It's like a roller coaster, like the new Yukon Striker at Wonderland. Like at the beginning, God is like, you're going to be a blessing. You'll be the father of many nations. Kings will come to you. It's going to be an everlasting covenant. You're going to have this amazing promised land. He's like looking out. Abraham's like, this is awesome. And then God's like, there's just one thing. You got to do the snip. And it's like all of a sudden, it's like, ah, what is happening to me? Straight down, right? Everything goes bad from there. Now, the good news for Abraham, we find out a few verses later, is that Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised. Now, I mean, I haven't had the experience of being 99, but I'm thinking by that time you're like, who cares, right? Like, honestly, who cares? But the very same verse says his son Ishmael was 13. I have been 13, and I know you don't say who cares when you're 13. So Abraham was 99, his son Ishmael was 13, and every male in Abraham's household was circumcised with him. Now let's fast forward a few centuries. After Joshua had led the Hebrew people across the Jordan River, if you recall the story or if you haven't heard it before, um, the Israelites were in bondage and slavery in Egypt. Moses led them out of bondage and slavery into the desert. Um, And then Joshua became the next leader. God stopped them in their tracks because during this 40-year period of wandering through the wilderness, they had abandoned the process of circumcision altogether. So for centuries since Abraham, this had been the practice of the the Jewish people. All males eight days older, or older would be circumcised in the family. Um, but they stopped this while they were wandering in the wilderness. And so there, as they're about to enter the promised land, God's like, okay, we've got to stop here. Joshua 5, verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the Israelites again. It's like, we're, we're going to bring this practice up. If you thought I was done with this, I'm not. We're still going with this. So I was thinking to myself, well, 
how, how exactly do you make a flint knife? Like, it doesn't seem like a very easy thing to do, but apparently it is easy. Uh, I found a YouTube video. We're not going to watch it, but this guy basically describes it. You just kind of find two different types of rocks and smash them against each other until one's, like, sharp enough. So you basically, God is saying, find, like, a really sharp rock out here somewhere and do the job, all right? Uh, this guy in his video... He says, uh, why would you want to make a, a flint knife? He says, maybe to, to cut a rope, to whittle fire-making tools, or skin a critter. Anyways, we'll keep moving. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the Israelites. Like, what a task this guy was called to. Holy smokes. After the whole nation, the whole nation had been circumcised, they remained where they were in camp until they were healed. Man, talk about the least popular guy in town. Imagine being Abraham or Joshua, where you're going out there, and the message that you have to share is, guys, God wants to bless us, but everyone needs to come forward. Now, all of this talk about circumcision has made me realize just how incredible it is that anyone ever followed God in the first place, right? Okay, so Abraham and Joshua, they were somehow able to convince scores of people that they should go through this procedure. Grown men undergo the knife. But some Pharisees in the first century were having a more difficult time convincing people. Now, in some ways, this morning's theme mirrors last week's conflict between right and wrong. We have two groups of people, both who are convinced that they are right and the other is wrong. The passage that Stephanie read for us came from Acts 15. I'll just read the first verse to set us up again. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers Unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, some definitions for us if we want to understand how this argument took place. There's two groups of people. There are Jews and there are Gentiles. Basic definition for you, Gentile, is anyone who is not Jewish. All right? So the Jews, they had their own way of life, their own traditions, their own religion, and then everyone else they considered a Gentile. So something was happening when Jesus came along and he began to teach about the kingdom of God, people became, they would be believers and they would, they would follow after him. And the interesting thing was that it wasn't just Jews who were becoming believers. It wasn't just Jews who were following this, this, this rabbi, this wandering rabbi. It was also Gentiles. So people who didn't have the Jewish history also started believing in Jesus and following after him. Now, the problem was that according to a bunch of the Jewish believers, so these Jews who were now following after Jesus, they said, yeah, but you can't get to, to Jesus without going through the Jewish history. So they said, no, that doesn't work. They scribbled out that line and said, the Gentiles need to become like Jews, and then they can start following Jesus. So this was their argument. Again, Acts 15, verse 5, some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. You can't get around this. We've been doing this for thousands of years. You've got to follow this ark first, all right? This is our sign of belonging. It always has been. If you don't have it, you're on the outside. So those with Jewish heritage who were following Jesus, they weren't thinking of themselves as no longer being Jewish. That was impossible. You can't not be Jewish. They were simply Jewish with Jesus. And so for them, to embrace Jesus meant to go through the whole thing again. Now, we're talking about a nation whose identity was in being the chosen people. Remember the story that I read from Abraham. So for centuries and centuries, generation after generation, they've been told God is doing something unique with us. And so as far as they were concerned, Jesus belonged to this history. The Jews who embraced 
the message of Jesus, were convinced that he was the one that God was pointing to and that he was continuing their long journey. So pick it up in verse 7 to 9. After much discussion, so they're talking about this, well, should the, Jew, should the Gentiles have to become Jewish to follow Jesus, or do they not need to? They, so the church leaders are talking about all this. Um, after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you, that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving them the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. And so Peter goes back to this equation we're looking at, and he's like, no, 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 scrap that, scrap that line up there. Gentiles actually can become believers. They don't have to jump through the hoops that we've jumped through all of these years. This is a big change. We believe, he says, it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Now, this may have been the first time that Jesus' followers couldn't agree on something, but it certainly wouldn't be the last. I was thinking about the first time in my life when I would have started to learn about Christians fighting with each other, and I was probably in middle school, learning when you start that stage of life, when you start to learn a little bit about world history and what's going on, and I can remember hearing about the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And those of you who probably are my age or older would be familiar with this and remember this in the news, uh, where Catholics and Protestants were fighting in Northern Ireland. And now a lot of it had to do with politics and, and land and who was going to rule them and stuff like that. Um, but there still was this underlying narrative that I couldn't really wrap my head around, was that Catholics and Protestants, so Christians, were fighting each other. Like, this was at a time in the world where when you heard the word terrorism, the first thing you thought of was Northern Ireland. You didn't think about the Middle East. You didn't think about Twin Towers. You thought about Northern Ireland. And so this was making the news all the time, but it was Christians fighting against each other. It's so strange. Well, where did that come from? Again, a lot of that was political, but way back in the day, uh, about 500 years ago, actually, is when the, the fight began. And it began with a guy named Martin Luther, who one day decided that he was going to, uh, he was a, a Catholic monk, and he decided that he was gonna, had enough with some of the practices of the Catholic Church. And he came forward and said, you know what, I'm just going to kind of start laying out all the things that I think are a little off base here. And so he put this, this list, this thesis up on the door, and he started you know, challenging Catholic leaders, saying, you know what, he started saying some of the similar things that, that we hear in Acts chapter 15. You know what, you are making people jump through hoops that I actually don't think they need to jump through. I don't think that people should be forced to undergo this procedure. I don't think they have to go through you. His main thing was like, I think that what people need is faith. And I think that if people have faith in Jesus, that's enough. So really, this is just a, a reappearance of that same article or the same argument from the first century. Miroslav Volf, a contemporary writer, says that thick religion is a way of life, or perhaps, and I love this, a quarreling family of diverse ways of life, that's a great analogy. Thick religion is a way of life both changing with times and circumstances and on account of its abiding tie to its origins, remaining the same. This is really important. I'm going to highlight two words from here, two little phrases from here. Changing with the times and remaining the same. So he talks about thick religion as opposed to obviously thin religion, which would be like a, uh, you know, kind of a paper thin, a lightweight religion, re religion that doesn't really count, that doesn't really matter, that's not really worth much, right? Um, but if you want like this thick religion, a religion that, that is really valuable, that gets to the heart of what we're trying to do here, connect with one another and with God, you got to be willing to do two things. You got to be willing to change with the times and you've got to be willing to remain the same. Well, that's challenging. How do you change with the times 
and remain the same. That was the challenge of Acts 15. That was the challenge of these early believers. See, early Christians were witnessing something outside of the realm of understanding. People were being accepted by God without doing the things that they were told were essential. For centuries, for generations, they were told, if you want to be part of the people of God, you must undergo circumcision. It is the sign that you belong. And all of a sudden, these Gentile people who had not undergone circumcision are receiving gifts of the Holy Spirit, evidence that God is blessing them and working in their lives, and the Christians are saying, wait a second, something is changing here. Something is different about this. Following Peter's argument, which we heard in this morning's reading, James, who is a leader of the church in Jerusalem where this whole conversation is taking place, he chimes in. And he draws attention to the Old Testament prophet Amos. And so Amos, writing generations earlier, is kind of voicing, uh, writing down God's voice, who says, after this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. So David was one of Israel's greatest kings, and his kingdom kind of came down, and his people were sent into exile. And so this prophet Amos is saying, At some point in time, I'm going to come and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. So first Peter, and then James acknowledged that God was doing something new, in their midst, but that it was also consistent with what God has been doing all along. They point out this verse from Amos. They're like, see, God God talked about these Gentiles who bear his name. He talked about all people coming to him. This is that balance again. Things are changing, but it's actually consistent with the way they've always been. Rob Bell has this line. He says, sometimes it appears to others as though you have betrayed the cause when in fact you are more committed to the cause than ever. It's like this. I was thinking of an analogy. It's like two employees. They work for the same company. They have the same boss that they report to, and they get in an argument because one of them is saying, one of them is pointing to a policy, and they're saying, look it, this is the policy manual we have. We all got it when we started working here. It says this is the way we need to do things. But the other employee, the other staff member is saying, I know, but we just left a staff meeting where our boss said that we're supposed to do it differently now. So which way is it? But no, we have it. It's written down. We have to do it this way. I know, but our boss just told us we're supposed to do it a different way now. And this is the argument that happens. One side is saying, God said that this would be the sign, circumcision. And the response, it sounds like God is saying something different now. As they searched the scriptures, they concluded that God had always intended on kicking the doors wide open and inviting the Gentiles in. Now, the really interesting thing about this, and if you want to be, if you want, if you're willing to be honest when you read the New Testament, when the early church leaders quote like a verse from the Old Testament, man, they ignore a lot of other verses. They're like, hey, we found this verse in Amos. Amos said that Gentiles are in. Well, there's like a lot of the Old Testament where God's like seems to think get rid of those Gentiles. All I care about is the Israelites. Like, there's a lot of that in the Old Testament. But they're like, no, but there's a clue here. There's a little seed here in Amos. And it, it must mean, because of what we're experiencing here, that God is, has always wanted this to happen. So we're going to pay attention to the seed and see what happens. So James stands up. He said, it is my judgment, therefore. The leader of the church here, 
after considering all things, it is my judgment that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. That's profound, world-changing statement. I listened to a podcast about a month ago, and the episode was uh, titled, Conflict is Underrated. And the whole idea was that we try to avoid conflict. None of us enjoy conflict. We, we do whatever we can to stay away from it. But the, the person who was interviewing, she was saying like, but it's so good. Because if you engage in conflict, sometimes something great comes on the other side. And sometimes conflict is the only way to get to the better place. The apostles and elders, they write a letter to be circulated among the Gentile believers where the people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. This is part of what they write in that letter. Acts 15, starting at verse 28. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. We can learn a lot from these first followers of Jesus as we pay attention to how they wrestled for what it meant for them to honor God with their lives. Now, I don't know if you are paying attention to the news this week. Tesla, big announcement, their Cybertruck. All right, so they revealed this, this beast of a vehicle. Um, it looks like something from Terminator or something like that, um, but this is apparently going to be on the streets in, in a little while. So they introduced this vehicle, and they did this live demonstration. And the first thing they did was they had someone uh, come up with a sledgehammer because uh, the, the panel is like, it's, it's bulletproof, it, it, so they had someone with a sledgehammer, and they're smashing the side of this truck, and it doesn't even leave a dent. It's like, yeah, do what you want, right? And then they're like, and you know what else is awesome? The windows, they are shatterproof. And so they have this guy stand up on the stage, and he has this, like, metal, this steel ball, and he winds up, and he throws it at the window, and we have a picture of that. Yeah, shatter the window. And Elon Musk is like, uh, I'll try it again, try it again, tries it again. Yeah, back window shattered as well. And then he kind of mutters under his breath something like, well, it didn't go through, <laughs> right? So I was, I was looking at this, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so terrible. Like, this is like the most important moment. Like, you've been developing this thing for how long? How many millions of dollars have you spent in researching and developing all of this stuff? And you're like, now we're launching it out to the world, and it just doesn't work. I was like, oh, poor guys, poor guys. Acts 15 is a reminder of just how much was at stake during those early formative years. This was, Acts 15 was the launch of the church. This was, this was the launch of something brand new. And there was a lot at stake. That council, man, everything that happened afterwards was teetering on the edge there. And so it was so significant to them. But this new revelation that apparently, according to the leaders of the church, God was willing to accept Gentiles without them jumping through the hoops... This revelation would take time to work its way through the churches that were scattered around the Mediterranean, as if one letter would solve the problem. Because remember, in the first century, it's not a blind copied email to a million people. It's a letter, a physical letter, one, that someone wrote down. And when they sent it to that next church, someone would sit down and they would start copying it out by hand, and they would pass it on to the next church in the next, nation, in the next city. So it took a while for this message to get around. And what we find throughout the rest of the New Testament, Acts is like the beginning of the story of the church, but the rest of the New Testament is an expanding awareness, not only of the fact that God accepts Gentiles, but what that acceptance looks like. And I'll tell you this much, I was actually surprised at how much 
the New Testament talks about circumcision. When I was studying this, I was like, this is nuts. Like, we could do a whole series on circumcision. So maybe like 2020, we'll do that. Um, no, I'm kidding. Um, but uh, I was like so surprised. But truthfully, like the New Testament is full of this imagery. It's full of this language because this was so significant for these early believers. So we'll start up with Paul's letter to the church in Rome, Romans chapter 2, verse 28 to 29. A person is not a Jew who is only one outwardly, nor is circumcision merely outward and physical. No. A person is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is circumcision of the heart by the spirit, not by the written code. Now, bit of an aside, because I read a heading on the news ticker this week that said one in four Europeans holds anti-Semitic views, so anti-Jewish views, one in four Europeans, okay? So I was thinking, we've got to be careful with this language because I think sometimes Christians misunderstand or misread what was happening here into this idea that somehow this was like a, a new group of people that were hating on the Jews and kind of trying to shove them out of the way. And, and people 2,000 years later still get caught up in this way of thinking, but that's not at all what was happening. So Paul, writing the letter to the Romans and writing pretty much everything I'm going to read from now on from the Bible, he was a Jew. And in case anyone was questioning his ability to speak to this issue, this is what he says in one of his letters to the Philippian church. He says, if someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, if someone thinks, else thinks that they can lean on their circumcision, he says, uh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law, a Pharisee, as for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. He's like, yeah, I have the authority to speak to this because I am in the inner circle of the inner circle. And so his words that we're going to read here this morning are amplified by the fact that he was in that inner circle. He bought into this more than anyone ever had. And he says, there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. That is so profound what he is saying there. There is no difference. Their entire history could be summed up by we are different. We are special. And Paul, inner circle of inner circles, says there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus the very person who had done everything that could be done to appease God is announcing flat out that we're in before we even lift a finger. Now, this is tough to, tough to accept, I acknowledge. Uh, for me, it reminded me of uh, what happens in grade schools. And I know we have a number of educators here, so I'm sure that I'll be stepping on some of your toes. But I, have, I just want to pick a, a bone to pick with participant ribbons. Because I, I, don't, I just don't know that we're setting our kids up for success when we give them a ribbon for being bad at something, right? So, oh, you're not good at running. Here's a reward, right? Like when a kid gets a D on a test, do you say, like, here's a ribbon for being bad at math? Or when you grow up and you don't get into school, here's a, here's a reward for failing, right? You know, here's a reward for being bad at this job. No, you're fired. You don't get into the school. This is, life is about, come on, like you gotta perform to, to deserve something. Give a participant ribbons? 
And so this language that Paul's using, it, it's tough to swallow. Because it's like God has given out participant ribbons left, right, and center. It's like everyone gets a ribbon. You don't have to win to get in. You don't have to be born into this family to get in. You don't have to have whatever to get in. Just come in. Francis Schaeffer, he's a Christian writer a generation ago, I, I summarized kind of what he wrote in one article, basically saying that Christianity is the easiest religion in the world because we come to God with nothing in our hands to receive his free forgiveness and love. But it is also the hardest religion in the world because that's all we have to do. Because every one of us wants to earn it. I want to earn the ribbon. I don't want to just be given the ribbon. I want to earn it. And every one of us thinks somehow that the things that we do or who we are somehow is going to make God accept us or not. And that's what people were trying to do in that first century, right? This word is spreading from church to church, from city to city, this message that God is opening the door to Gentiles, to everyone. Everyone comes in here. But people were fighting against it. They're saying, no, you've got to jump through these hoops. And Paul's language is, is rough. It's harsh. Uh, Philippians 3, 2, watch out for those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. Like he speaks in such harsh language about people who are trying to force people to do something to earn God's favor instead of just accepting it. As for those agitators, he writes to the Galatians, I wish they would go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Forget the snip. Right to the chop. Can you sense Paul's desire to move on from this debate, to turn our focus somewhere else? Listen to this, three rapid-fire verses. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing. Keeping God's commands is what counts. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. You see what he's doing here? This conversation is over. That way of getting into God's family is done. Now, the things that matter, faith expressing itself through love, keeping God's commands. The new creation is what matters. It's tough to say goodbye. Some of you are going to be disappointed to hear this. Some of you will rejoice, but this past week I said goodbye to my Blackberry. I've held on for a long time, held on to this phone for a long time. I was talking to someone this week. They said, I, it's been like years since I've even seen someone with a BlackBerry. I, I didn't know people had that. So I was, I was kind of knowing this. I thought, oh, I bet people have been making jokes about this. So I, I Googled BlackBerry, rest in peace, and I found this little cartoon. Welcome to our club, you know, oh, little Nokias and flip phones and that. But then I found this other one too, BlackBerry, 1999 to 2011. I was like, wait, <laughs> it's almost 2020. <laughs> 2011, shoot. It's tough to say goodbye and enter the new world. I get it, okay? But Paul has so much good news about this saying goodbye and this embracing something new. He says to the Colossians, In Christ you've been brought to fullness. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Go back to the scissors illustration I showed earlier. We don't have to cut off sensitive body parts to win God's approval, but by faith we allow God to cut off everything in us that leads us away from life to its fullest. That's what Paul's saying here. He said, you're allowing Christ to chop off the things that really get in the way. So the good news that starts to appear in Paul's teaching, 
on the need to move beyond circumcision is that God's approval is not something we earn, but something we accept. Trip Fuller of uh, Homebrewed Christianity podcast says, one of the deepest challenges as a Christian is accepting the fact that you are accepted. Believing what God has already said about you in Christ is the most true thing, as opposed to the things we internalize and say to ourselves. So are you ready to listen to what God has said about you? At the end of his letter to the Galatians, Paul says something profound. He's wrapping up after this whole conversation about circumcision being a way of the past, circumcision of the heart being the main thing, living in this new creation. He says, peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, to the Israel of God. And I can't overemphasize the radical nature of this statement. Paul redefines Israel as those who are participating in a new creation on the other side of Jesus' death and resurrection. Now, we have to go back before Genesis 17, where I read it from earlier, where God was giving this promise to Abraham. We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 12, when God first spoke to Abraham. He said, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Not all Jews on earth, certainly not all Christians on earth, but all peoples on earth. So Paul redefines the mission. He said, this is what God was talking about all the time. You are the Israel of God. When we began this series, I quoted from Peter Steinke this line, the Christian story is underlined with conflict. It's underlined with conflict, but it's also highlighted with reconciliation. And so in closing today, I want to read from another of Paul's letters, Ephesians, chapter 2 specifically. He says, remember, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth were separate from Christ. That's all of us, probably, most of us certainly in this room, Gentiles by birth. Remember that formerly we were all separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope, and without God in the world. Remember that. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. But now. Communion is a time when we gather around a table to remember that corporately, that individually, historically, we were far from God. We were excluded. We were others. We were outside. We were foreigners. But now, we are the Israel of God. We're the one through whom his blessing stretches to the ends of the earth. We're welcomed and accepted. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. 
for through him we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. At the heart of this faith of ours is a unifying peace that results in a new humanity where barriers are broken down between one another and between ourselves and God. And so this morning I'll invite you to come and remember that we were once strangers and foreigners. Remember that we were once separated from God, but now we're welcome. And so we'll begin at the, at the front here. And if you would like to participate, we invite you to come. The table is open to all. I invite those who are serving to make their way to the front. If you would rather not participate, if you can just do us a favor and let the people sneak by, you, use this time to reflect on what you've heard here. Reflect on the openness of God's invitation to you. I'll close with this line and pray. And then I invite you to come and receive the elements and, and take them with you. You can share the elements on your own, like either up at the front here if you'd like, or when you get back to your seats, you can eat the bread, drink the cup in remembrance. But I read from Ephesians 2.19, and the band will play a song that echoes these words as I invite you to come. Paul concludes this statement about remember, but now, with these words. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. So I invite you to come to the table.